you guys. Here we are again for another Flickers of Fear. So I can't remember where exactly I went into this, but I feel like I've talked before about how maybe Canadian horror movies tend to be ever so slightly like underrated or underseen with the possible exception, obviously, of maybe like David Cronenberg's movies, like everybody's seen those. But I have to say that, especially in regards to the slasher subgenre, um, Canada kind of like punches way above its weight. And I feel like they're a little bit ahead of the curve. They were a little bit ahead of the curve on that. I mean, obviously they were not only responsible for one of the very first slasher movies, uh, 1974's Black Christmas, which was released, you know, four whole years before John Carpenter's Halloween. But I feel like they also came up with a bunch of really good examples of the slasher subgenre like uh, you know in the wake of halloween making such a big impact like on the horror scene so while some canadian horror movies i feel like have maybe finally like gotten their due you know so like my bloody valentine prom night terror train i mean they all have like these massive cult followings I do feel like there's one Canadian slasher that doesn't really seem to get brought up all that much, even though, in my opinion, it's actually one of the best of its kind. Um, it's a very ambitious movie uh, for a slasher. It's a kind of a twisty, it's, you know, it's filled with twists like it's a murder mystery. And it has like some pretty decent gore in it as well. Has some kind of bigger named stars, like it, both in the movie and behind the camera. And had like a significantly larger budget than this type of movie would usually merit. And the movie that I'm talking about is Happy Birthday to Me from 1981. So the idea for this movie uh, was cooked up by, or maybe I should say baked up like a birthday cake. <laughs> no, Jenny, you shouldn't say that. Uh, but anyway, so the idea of it came from these two producers whose names are John Dunning and Andre Link. And their whole thing previously, they had been working on kind of like skin flicks, like Canadian like erotic horror movies. I think they were mostly like softcore porn. You know what I mean? Uh, and they had been successful at that. But they started seeing the higher profitability potential of the burgeoning horror market that was coming out like in the wake of Halloween, which made like all the money. So they hired this English professor from the University of Toronto named John Saxton to kind of like put together a script. Now, by this point, as I mentioned, Halloween and Friday the 13th had kind of set the stage, like, for the slashers going forwards. Everybody was, like, trying to rip them off. So lots of filmmakers were just jumping on this trend, you know, you of, like, a low-budget, high-return horror film based, you know, kind of, uh, you know, targeted toward maybe the teen or the 20s, you know, demographic. And a lot of them, because of the success of Halloween... Uh, were based around a holiday. You know what I mean? You had New Year's Evil. You had Terror Train, which I mentioned before, which was also set around New Year's. You had some Christmas ones, like To All a Good Night, which was directed by David Hess, for Christ's sake, from uh, Last House on the Left. Uh, and then you had Christmas Evil, Mother's Day, ones like that. Or there were some that were, like, also based around kind of, like, a special event. You know what I mean? Like, Prom Night or Graduation Day or He Knows You're Alone, which was actually kind of based around a wedding type of thing. So the writer and the producers came up with this concept, which would be focused around a character's birthday. Uh, they thought that they would maybe have universal appeal because, you know, obviously everyone has a birthday. And then they sort of cross-pollinated it with the idea that the main character 
would have kind of like some kind of brain injury that would prevent her from knowing exactly what was going on around her. And they thought maybe this will add like another layer of ambiguity or another layer of mystery like to the plot. Incidentally, the same producers behind Happy Birthday to Me were also responsible for My Bloody Valentine. Now, My Bloody Valentine, I think, went into pre-production only like a week or two after Happy Birthday to Me wrapped. But uh, My Bloody Valentine was actually released before Happy Birthday to Me, like just because to take advantage of like Valentine's Day, they wanted to be released around Valentine's Day. So Happy Birthday to Me was actually directed by an Oscar-winning director, a British guy, J. Lee Thompson, who had kind of come up as, you know, being like this kind of classic Hollywood type of guy. He had directed The Guns of Navarone from 1961, uh, the original Cape Fear from 1962. So he was kind of like known for that kind of stuff. And then like once the 70s rolled around, he'd kind of been getting into a little bit more like genre type movies um he actually directed the fourth and fifth movies in the original like planet of the apes series which i think it was conquest for the planet of the apes and beneath the planet of the i can't really remember but i know conquest was like pretty sure one of them uh but he was actually intrigued he'd been getting kind of more interested in thrillers and stuff so he was kind of interested to try his hand at a slasher horror movie even though you'd think that a guy like that wouldn't really be interested also looking for a change of pace was the lead actress they got a star in this who was uh, melissa sue anderson now she obviously had become a mega star because of her role as mary ingles on little house on the prairie which was like a hugely popular tv series but she was actually kind of looking to get into movies i believe this was her first major film role and she specifically wanted to get into something different from the very, very wholesome role that she was most identified with. So she was like really into the idea of doing a horror movie. Now also classing up the cast was the iconic Canadian character actor, Glenn Ford, who was actually in a, this was kind of a small part for him. He stars as, you know, the main character's psychiatrist, essentially. Um, Glenn Ford was in loads of big films, like during Hollywood's golden era. Like he was in Gilda from 1946. He was in The Big Heat from 1953, uh, Blackboard Jungle from 1955. And only a couple of years before he was in Happy Birthday to Me, he was uh, Jonathan Kent, you know, Superman's, uh, you know, adoptive dad or whoever in Superman, like the Richard Donner one from 1978. Uh, I heard <laughs> that Glenn Ford was apparently a nightmare to work with uh, on the Happy Birthday to Me set. Uh, they said that he was drunk pretty much all the time. And allegedly uh, engaged in some fisticuffs with at least one member of the crew. Now, because of Canadian tax laws, because remember, like, there was all these movies that came out in Canada where they were, like, giving people, they wanted to, like, pump up their uh, film industry, so they were giving people, like, tax incentives and stuff like that to shoot there, but you had to have, like, a certain, you know, amount of your, certain percentage of your actors and crew had to be Canadians and stuff like that. So because of these particular stipulations, uh, Glenn Ford was actually paid a much bigger salary than the very small role that he had in the film would suggest. Uh, and that was because the main star of the film, who was Melissa Sue Anderson, was American and not Cre and not Canadian. So they had to have, like, pretty much most of the other actors and crew and stuff like that were Canadian. But he, they, they've just had to do it so, like, Glenn Ford got the most money, I guess. So, yeah. So the rest of the cast were kind of then lesser-known Canadian actors, largely. Uh, some of whom actually went on to, you know, decent or, like, big 
big fame later later on. Uh, you had Lawrence Lawrence Dane was in this. I think he was in Bride of Chucky later on. Uh, Leslie Donaldson, who was in this, she came kind of became like something of a minor scream queen, I guess, like in the 1980s. She was in Deadly Eyes from 1982, uh, which I think also had Scatman Crothers in it. And she was in Curtains from 1983, which I just reviewed on here not too long ago. Uh, Matt Craven, who played a character named Steve in this movie, I feel like he probably went on to maybe the most, like, prolific career. Like, he's still around nowadays, like, still working. But he was in Jacob's Ladder from 1990, A Few Good Men, Crimson Tide, um, the 2005 remake of Assault on Precinct 13. He was in X-Men First Class from 2011. So, yeah. So, like I said, he's, I kind of feel like he was the one that maybe was the most successful or recognizable. So the story of Happy Birthday to Me is a tad convoluted. Let's call it that. Uh, and it has like several twists toward the end. The last of which was pretty clearly dreamed up like partway through the production because there really isn't any setup for it. But honestly, if I'm being, I don't know. It's uh, To me, that just seems like a very minor quibble, um, at least in my opinion. The movie, I'm going to say too, is also significantly longer than most slasher movies. It's almost two hours. I think it's like an hour and 54 minutes or something like that. But in spite of that, it never really seems to drag. I mean, at least in my estimation, it seems like there's always kind of something interesting going on. So in the movie, we're mainly following this young woman named Virginia, or Jenny for short, and she goes to this kind of fancy private school called Crawford Academy, which is, I think, is supposed to be somewhere in Massachusetts, even though the movie was shot mostly in Montreal um, and some of it in upstate New York. So Ginny is a member of the so-called Top Ten. This is like a, a group of these very wealthy, privileged, but popular students, and they all hang out together. And they mostly hang out at this pub in type situation and it's called the silent woman and the sign of it like has a headless serving girl which i was like okay that's a little bit weird it's a little macabre like for but you know i i guess that's kind of like a that's a british thing too where they have like those pubs with those like kind of fucked up names but that's kind of like what this one is like too so at the very beginning of the movie uh, another one of the top 10 people whose name is bernadette she gets murdered by an unseen killer wearing black gloves. Now, we know right away that the killer is somebody the victim knows because the killer, like, attacks her in a car and then she manages, like, to get away. And, you know, after she escapes, she runs into someone else who we don't see and she gives that all, oh, it's you, you know, thank God I'm saved or whatever, like, that routine. And then it turns out that that person is, of course, the killer that she thought that she had escaped from. I will say, too, that I do actually kind of question Bernadette's decision. Like, after she escapes from this killer who was uh, in the backseat of her car, like, she gets out of the car, but she only runs, like, 10 feet <laughs> and then, like, hides my... I'm just like keep going. <laughs> it's like, get the fuck out of there. It's like the killer's still right there. It's not like you got out of the car and they like disappeared or something like that. I was like, they're still there and they can see you like very clearly. I just thought it was very weird that she just kind of like stayed there. I don't know if she thought she was hiding or I don't know. It was just like really, really weird. So anyway, uh, so the rest of the gang are back at the silent woman, like the pub. And although they notice like Bernadette's absence, they don't really attribute anything sinister to it. They're like, oh, you know, maybe she found something better to do or she's staying over with a boyfriend or something like that. Now, after they leave the bar, they decide to do this thing, which apparently they do quite a lot and they call it the game. And this is essentially like a game of chicken with like a rising drawbridge, like all the cars. I think they call out for 
you know, point like who's going first and who's going sick. Because obviously you want to go first because you can go. They're ramping the bridge essentially, like while it's gr- going up. So if you call first, then obviously you're going to get be able to get over a lot easier, and it's like it just gets harder and harder. Like as much, I don't know why you'd want to do that because it'd be like a horrible death. But you know what I mean. So yeah, so they're trying to like jump the gap between the sections of the bridge, like while they're going up. Now, on this particular occasion, the car that has Jenny and a couple other people, and I can't remember which one of the gang is driving it. She's not driving. Um, and the the car, it makes it, like, over the gap, but just barely. And Jenny freaks the fuck out and, like, runs off into the wood. Now, they think this is, like, weird. Like, what the fuck's her deal? I'm like, um, you almost killed her? That's what her deal is. But it turns out that there's, like, a deeper thing, like, going on with that. It turns out that she had this big extreme reaction because it had to do with, like, the death of her mom in an accident that happened, I think it was like four years previously. Now, the details of the event, you don't actually learn what they were until later on. So we know that Jenny was somehow involved in the accident, but she lost her memory of it completely. We also find out that she has been the subject of like an experimental treatment that attempted to, I think they're trying to like stimulate the regrowth of her brain cells, like through electricity or something. Like they said, like they got the idea from like the whole galvanometer thing, like with the frog leg, you know what I mean? Because there's like a scene where they're in biology class and they're doing that. So, but the writer said that that's where he got one of the ideas from. Like it was some experimental thing where it's like, oh, we're trying to stimulate, like, you know, shock your brain. So there's actually like a great scene where they basically like cut her skull open and like take a piece out and like fart around in there. It's like the special effects are actually quite good in this. So, uh, so Jenny is under the care of a psychiatrist and he's encouraging her to try to regain her repressed memories of what happened to her mom. But it's also kind of maybe implied that the experiment might also be messing with her perception of reality. So as the story goes on, uh, you get a number of red herrings, red herring type characters. But like, you know, because it's this big group of friends, you know what I mean? And so you have this one dude that hangs out with him who's kind of nerdy and he has like a pet rat and he's really into taxidermy. So, you know, everybody thinks that's like super weird. You have this kind of like overbearing, I think he's like a French Canadian jock type dude who is he's kind of like a little bit of a stalker type thing. He's like follows Ginny around and like climbs in her bedroom window at some point, and like steals her underwear. And then you got this guy that, you know, takes her to this weird, creepy, like bell tower, like on a date or something. And like does like Quasimodo voices. And, and also he like buries a skull from the science lab on campus for a prank while several of their friends are missing, which seems like not all that wise. Now, because all of these dudes are so obviously set up as weirdos or suspicious, then you know that they're going to turn out not to be the killer. But I mean, it's still like, I mean, they're still entertaining diversions anyway, but much like this is a little bit like a Giallo movie. So it's like the most obvious guy, you know that that's not who it is. I have to say too that the kills in this are actually pretty fun. Um, You get like a weightlifter guy who's like gets his neck crushed by his own barbell, like after the killer, like also like takes the the rack thing away and then drops another like weight on his crotch, which I thought was very funny. Um, You have one where like a dude gets his scarf thrown into like the running engine of his motorcycle. So it like pulls his face into the thing. Um, And you also get that famous kill that appears on the poster of a guy getting like shanked through the mouth 
flake with a shish kebab. Now, it should be noted that the guy on the poster is, I don't think, is even in the movie. You know what I mean? That was just, like, a guy that posed for the poster. But he's not in the movie. Um, and is it just, like, a completely... And it's so it's a different person. Like, the guy that gets shanked in the movie, like, with the shish kebab, doesn't even look like that guy. So, I don't know. It's really weird. Now, toward the end of the second act, uh, it's actually revealed that Ginny was the killer all along. Or was she? Uh, it certainly does look like she's the one who, for example, like stabs the rat guy and stabs the guy with the shish kebab. Like they're not even pretending that it's not her, you know what I mean? Because they're just showing her. Um, but as memories of her past start to get slowly doled out there, I guess they're trying to like set up like a motive for her. So you discover that Ginny's mom, like four years ago, invited all the rich popular kids all the from the academy like all the ones that are now dead to Ginny's birthday party but none of them showed up because they all went to the party of another later member of the top 10 whose name is Anne who was apparently like a lot more popular richer whatever than Ginny was I think it's implied kind of that Ginny's mom was maybe kind of trashy or like nouveau riche or something so the other families in the area were kind of like real snobby about accepting her and accepting her daughter so maybe there was like some shit like that going on so after this whole snub uh pissed off mom puts Ginny in the car and then angrily drives over to Anne's house telling Ginny well it's your birthday so you're we're gonna go to that party whether we were invited or not um but on the way there Ginny's mom tries to ramp the drawbridge during a storm and doesn't make it hence why Ginny always like freaks out whenever they play that game right so the car actually plunges into the water very far below um, in a stunt, which I heard ultimately ended up destroying about 15 cars because they kept like dropping them. <laughs> and I guess they didn't get the shots they wanted or something like that. Um, so yeah, so the car goes into the water and Ginny is actually able to swim to safety, uh, but her mother drowns. And after that, like she blocks out all memory of the accident. And then like toward the end of the movie, there's a really great like creepy scene, which I always like really remembered where Ginny's dad comes across a birthday party that Ginny has set up, uh, apparently, with all of her dead friends and her mom's rotting corpse, like, sitting around the table wearing party hats, and then there's, like, a birthday cake in the middle. So we're led to believe that a combination of finally remembering all the details of the accident where her mom died, and also the weird shit that the doctors did to Ginny's brain, like, while they were trying to do this experiment on her, made her go completely ape shit and like bump off all the top 10 like in revenge for slighting her which in turn caused her mother to get killed but then the movie throws us for a complete loop by first making us think that Ginny had a twin because we think like there's Ginny and she's doing the shit with the cake and everything like that but then like there's another Ginny like sitting at the table who's still alive but then they reveal that the true killer was actually Anne who was wearing an unbelievably realistic mask of Ginny's face to make everybody think that Ginny was the one doing the murders, right? So it turns out that Anne, who had actually disappeared earlier on in the film, but whose body was never found, because obviously she was still alive, was actually Ginny's half-sister. Ginny's dad, I think, had an affair with Anne's mom, like, years ago. And that just caused, like, the whole entire breakdown of Anne's family when she's, like, a little bit bitter about it still. So Anne comes up with this, like, really complicated scheme to dress up as Jenny. Not even dress up as her. Just, like, have... Because, like I said, the face... I mean, it's obviously it's the same actress. You know what I mean? So it's, like, the best, the best fucking fake makeup you've ever seen. Yeah. So, uh, so she's going to dress up as Jenny or look like Jenny, 
drug the actual Jenny so that she doesn't remember anything. Um, and then kind of make her think like she's crazy and she's the one doing all this shit and she's like losing her memory. And then she's just going to kill everybody, including ultimately Jenny herself. And then I guess blame Jenny posthumously like for the murders. So it doesn't make a lot of sense really. <laughs> and that's because as I alluded to earlier, this final plot twist was actually kind of pulled out of the filmmakers butts sort of at the last minute. Now, originally, Ginny absolutely was supposed to be the killer all along, but evidently, I think it was Columbia Pictures who distributed the movie, they were not, like, really a fan of that ending for whatever reason, so it was changed, like, very, very late in the game. Which means that if you watch the film a second time with the express purpose of looking for clues, like hinting that Anne was the killer all along, uh, you won't find them because they aren't there, because they just changed that at literally, like, the last minute. I have to say, though, in spite of the sort of, like, what-the-fuck ending... I still really dig Happy Birthday to Me. Um, it was a slasher that I always remembered really fondly, like from renting the VHS back in the day. I mean, it's a great cover. It's very iconic. And we rented it, me and my brother, we rented it like pretty often, like back in the early to mid 80s. And I always remember really, really liking it. I think I saw it on cable a few times as well. And watching it now, I haven't seen it in many years, but you can tell that it's clearly more expensive and much better shot than a lot of its kind of like cheapy slasher counterparts, maybe and the acting is kind of like a notch above too. Although I will say that I always thought Melissa, Melissa Sue Anderson and um, I think the actress's name is Sharon Acker that plays her mom. I think they come off a little overwrought, but other than that, it's good. But yeah, I mean, the movie has like some fun kills and the gore is very, very well executed. Like I said, really good special effects and it really doesn't wear out its welcome in spite of it being like much longer than average for this type of movie. I mean, as I mentioned, the plot is very complex and is not really all that believable, like especially like that last twist. But I mean, to be honest, I always just kind of took it in the same spirit as a Giallo movie with, you know, the kind of outlandish twists and turns like that has. It's just kind of like you just go along for the ride and it's like, you know, it's not terribly believable, but that's okay. Um, and you know, it keeps you on your toes, so I can't be too mad at it. So like I said, I feel like Canadian slashers have kind of gotten some appreciation in modern times. I still feel like Happy Birthday to me, I, it just doesn't seem to get the recognition that it deserves. So I kind of hope that eventually um, it'll sort of take its rightful place among the ranks of other beloved Canucksploitation uh, slashers, like I said, along with Black Christmas and stuff like that, because it really is quite good, uh, especially for a slasher. So if you've seen it, let me know in the comments what you thought about it. Actually, at the moment, I believe you can watch it on Tubi for free, at least as of this recording. So if you haven't seen it, maybe go check it out and tell me what you thought about it. And that will do it for this Flickers of Fear. I'll see you guys again on the next one. Bye.